we are pushing through this book of Revelation. Uh, we finished the seven churches last week, and now we're going to the end of Revelation. Revelation 18, you can turn there. This is not just the end of the letter. In fact, this isn't just even the end of the biblical story. This is the end. <laughs> this is the end to which the whole world is moving. And God in his grace describes it for us so we can know some things about the future. So this is not just the future hope of Christians living in the first century, but this is our future hope as well. So with that little introduction, I think it's on page 1001. We'd love to stand for the reading of God's word. Please stand. It's a long text. It's a sobering text. Do your best to not think about last night or the Super Bowl tonight to just let God's word speak to you right now. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her pornea, her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her. The merchants, the business uh, people of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. And then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to the heavens, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. For in her heart, she boasts, I sit enthroned as a queen. And I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, literally one hour, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, famine, she will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord who judges her. And when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury, see the smoke of her burning. They will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry. Alas, alas, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, and pearls. Fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet cloth. Every sort of citron wood, articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. And they will say, the fruit you long for has gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. 
The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand afar off, terrified at her torture. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Alas, alas, you great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off, and when they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They'll throw dust on their heads, and with weeping and mourning, cry out, Alas, alas, you great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to room. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her, and the judgment she imposed on you. And then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea, and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And the music of harpists, musicians, pipers, and trumpeteers will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will, be, will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. And by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. This is God's word. You can be seated. It's quite a text, isn't it? Have you read it before? This is how our Bible is, how our Bible ends. Verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, before we answer who or what is Babylon, I first want to look closely at how the text describes Babylon. Because our mind can start running to first century connections, we can run to all sorts of connections in our day. But I want to first look at how the text describes Babylon. Um, In verse 2, Babylon is called Babylon the Great. Called this five other places. Revelation 14, 8, 16, 9, 18, 10. um, Three more times in our text today. Um, Babylon the Great. Babylon the Mega is how it reads. Oh, great city. Greatness is what describes this city. So now what made her great? Or at least great to the world? Well, really, three things. Uh, The first is in one of these verses, it describes her as mighty 
or powerful. And that is what Babylon is. It is an incredibly powerful entity. In fact, if you want to know the depth and breadth of Babylon's power, look at 17 verse 18. It's the last verse of that chapter. It rules over the kings of the earth. And in other places, it, it says, it implies that all the king's people or all the kings, the rulers of the earth, derive their power from Babylon. So it doesn't just have power over the peoples of the earth, but the important people, the rulers of the earth, also derive their power from Babylon. Look at verse 18, verse 23. Talks about all the nations being held captive by her spell. Uh, that, that's exactly what power does. Power casts a spell. And so great is Babylon's spell that pretty much all the world, the nations, are, are spellbound by this spell. Reminds me of uh, Lord of the Rings, Fro Frodo's ring. I mean, that ring is called the ring of power. This is what power does. It, it casts a, a, a spell. Um, in fact, in um, Lord of the Rings too, you see that no one is immune from the ring of power, both great and small, uh, king and slave. Even Frodo, the hobbits, these, these guileless creatures, people, um, Gandalf himself, they're not immune to the ring of power. That's Babylon. It's a force. Second thing that made uh, Babylon great to the world is, and of course this goes right alongside power, these two things go hand in hand, is her wealth. I mean, the, the ridiculous amount of wealth that, that is attributed to Babylon in this text is it's almost mind-boggling. Um, verse 16, she's, she's depicted as dressed in the world's finest. Um, then verses 12 to 14 uh, is just a whole list of, of all the, the wealth that, that belongs to her. It, it, it's all hers because Babylon is the economic engine that drives the world economy. All the world's riches, all the rich people, are all dependent on Babylon for their wealth. The third thing in the text that makes Babylon great to the world is her sensuality. And this starts earlier, um, already in chapter 14 and 15, where Babylon is called... In our English, it's the great prostitute, but in the original language, it's, it's the mega, the mega whore. That is how Babylon is, is described. And look at chapter 17, verse 1. It says, come and I will show you the punishment of, of the great prostitute, this, this, this mega whore who sits on many waters. In fact, I, it's just 
I, I can't go in detail in your, to, to describe how the original language describes it because it's much more graphic than what, than what we should be comfortable uh, here this morning. But if you want to know what this great horse sits on, the many waters is flushed out in verse 15 of chapter 17. It says, The waters that you saw where the great horse sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And like a horse, he sits on them. And then you uh, see this clause repeated over and over like we have in our text today, chapter 18, verse 2. Um, fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Verse 3, for all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her pornea, her, her adulteries. This is all part of, of Babylon's allure. It's, it, it's part of the spell that she casts. And so Babylon is depicted here as this world system where money, sex, and power are king. Sounds like our world, doesn't it? See, this is what this defines Babylon. This is what the ba- people of the world go to Babylon to, to seek. It's, 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 it's this place where money, sex, and power uh, define and, and, and lavish out to those who come to her. Now, there's one more characteristic that I need to show you that's important to Babylon. Babylon is also depicted as drunk. Not on pornea, but what? Well, we see it in one of the last two verses, but in, in, chapter, um, in the chapters preceding this, uh, she is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. So if you think of Babylon being uh, neutral or indifferent to Jesus, you're wrong. Babylon is anti-Jesus. Babylon is anti-Christ. She stands against the Lord and his anointed. So now we can ask the question, who or what is Babylon? Well, let's uh, do this the way we've been looking at Revelation thus far, let's start with the recipients of, their, of this letter. What would have they understood Babylon to be? And that's not hard to, to um, connect the dots to Rome, because even to a first century Jew, the, they had these code words that they would use to describe certain things. Their code word for Rome, or the Roman Empire, is Babylon. That's in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Even Peter, at the end of his letter, when he's saying, hey, send my greetings to this person and to this person, and send my greetings to this person who is in Babylon, that's his code word. That person's not in Babylon. That person's in Rome. And here's what I want us to see. Even though that we, we have looked and emphasized the dark side of Rome, I want you to know that in that world, Rome oftentimes was seen as salvation. Rome was viewed as the great benefactor 
who blesses the world with peace and security and prosperity, who blesses the world with money, sex, and power. In fact, even the, the, the word gospel, euangelion in, in, in the Greek, is, is, a, is a word that the Romans first used, and they attached it to the Caesars. They talked about the good news, the gospel of Rome, the gospel of Caesar, because these words were also attached to, uh, to Caesar. Caesar was, was called Soter, Savior of the world, Son of God, Lording God. The Lord's Day was first attached to Caesar. These were the days where everybody had to worship Caesar. God incarnate, gospel. And so what I want us to see right now, um, to the first century Christian, or to the first century person, um, Babylon is, is far more than just a political reality. It's theology. It's, 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 it's a theology, the basics of this, of, of, of this Roman theology is, is that the gods have chosen Rome namely its emperors, as the mediator, as the vehicle by which God is going to give his will, the gods are going to give their presence, the gods are going to give peace and prosperity to the world. And so the way that you would get the gods to bless you and prosper you is by submitting to Rome, to Caesar, and you'd worship him as Lord and God. And if you didn't submit, they didn't just kill you. They were specialists in torture. They would publicly torture you to say to the world, this is what we do to those who don't submit and worship. Now that's Babylon then. We live in Babylon now. And I don't mean to say that as an overly dramatic statement, but I'm pretty confident my kids go to school there every day. We go to work there almost every day. Um, more and more, our world is Babylon, where money, sex, and power are part of a world system that we are called to worship. And here's the deal. God has given us, as believers, marching orders and how we are to relate to Babylon. This goes uh, back to Jeremiah 29, uh, where God says to his people, listen, I, I, I want you to move in. I want you to move into Babylon all the way in. And, and when you're in there, I want you to seek the shalom, shalom of this city. I want you to pray for the shalom, shalom of Babylon. In fact, Babylon is, means confusion or chaos. And God wants his people to bring his peace and shalom into that chaos. But too, 
too often what happens is Babylon, instead of us shaping and defining it, it begins to shape and define us. And, and pretty soon, we are under the spell of the ring of power. So I want to get real personal right now. And just, when you go home today, put your face in front of a mirror and look at that person staring back at you right in the eyes. And ask that person, how consumed are you with money? How much does money define you and define your life and define what you're going after? What about sex? Are you stewarding this area of your life for the glory of God? What about power? Look that person in the eyes today and, and, and ask that person, do you need to be in control? Do you need to be in control over your life? Do you seek to be in control over other people? Do you um, have this need to always be at the table? Do you have this need to be on the inside? I love what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis says that we all have this unhealthy desire to belong. A dark ambition to move in the right circles and to win praise from the right kinds of people. Here's the deal. How we treat things like money, sex, and power tells us everything about what kingdom we belong to. Do we belong to Babylon or do we belong to Christ and his kingdom? Jesus made it very clear. Seek first my kingdom and my justice. And here's the deal with Jesus. Don't reduce Jesus to what many people want to do with Jesus today. We want to make him a great moral example a great teacher, a philosopher who shows us a beautiful way to live life differently than the rest of the world. Yes, Jesus does that. Yes, we're to learn how Jesus walks. Yes, we're to walk as Jesus walked. However, Jesus is more than a philosopher and a teacher. He is the king, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he wins and he will come and he will judge Babylon once and for all. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. Babylon will be taken away. That is the point of this text. Uh, look at verse 10, chapter 18. Terrified at her torment, they will stand afar off and cry, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour, your destruction has come. Verse 21, like a millstone cast in the sea, that's what Babylon is going to be like. Babylon is going to just be cast into the sea and will be no more. And, and what we're talking about here is what some Christians might call judgment day. It's what the prophets described as the great day of the Lord. All of history is moving towards this day. 
And this day, as, as the prophets tell us, it, it's not just a day where God is going to dole out punishment. Punishment is, is not the meaning of judgment. Judgment at the core of, of, of the meaning of that word, especially in the Hebrew, is restoration. God has a day set in mind when he is going to come and restore. He's going to repair and fix everything that's broken. That is such an amen. It is. And, and, and what this is going to include Part of the reparation, behold, I am making all things new, is he's going to deal with Babylon. Babylon's going to get flushed. And the text then tells us that the weeping and the despair that this is going to produce, that's why I use the word in English, a word that we don't use very much anymore, but gets way closer to the meaning than just woe. And that's this word, alas. Alas is the response to something so devastating, tragic. It's the response of just this intense grief. Alas, alas, you great city. Three times it's mentioned, 15, 16, 19. It's, it, it's, it's, it's the grief that's greater than, than one would feel when losing a son or a daughter. And see, when you read 18 and then you also put 19 with it, we didn't have time to read it, you also realize that, that those who trusted the gospel of Babylon, who found their life in Babylon, who, who gave their life to Babylon, who, who came under Babylon's spell, who derive their happiness and their security and, and their significance from Babylon, who let Babylon name them and, and, and bore Babylon's mark like that millstone, they too be cast in the sea. Alas, alas. Here's my question. On Super Bowl Sunday... Is this good news or bad news? Well, it depends. I told you about the wailing of the text, but starting at verse 20, look at verse 20. Rejoice over her. You heavens, rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her and with the judgment she, with the judgment she imposed on you. And that's just one verse. Then you read chapter 19, and chapter 19 is like one big hallelujah from God's people. Look at uh, 19 verse 1. After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. And he has condemned the great whore who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. And he has avenged on her the blood of his saints. 
fact, that word avenge there is better translated vindicated. Judgment day is a day of vindication. And depending on you being a little guy or a big guy, an important person or an unimportant person, will determine a lot if that is a day of singing for you or a day of rejoicing. Because this hallelujah coming from the vindicated is a hallelujah coming from the desperate, from the poor, the pitiful, the blind, and the naked. (laughs) Hallelujah! It's Jesus making good on all the things he said. The humble will be exalted. The exalted will be humbled. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, their day has now come. It's a day when God is going to make everything right. It's a day when the king returns to judge, to restore, to vindicate. So here's the question I want to ask. Is this going to be a day of weeping and wailing or a day of singing and dancing for you, for us? Who's going to sing and dance? Who's going to mourn and wail? See, God is already giving us a, a, a preview some previews of Judgment Day. Uh, the, the most obvious one is, is in Exodus with the plagues and the angel of the Lord uh, going throughout the whole Egyptian land. That day was a judgment day. And on that day, some are left weeping and wailing and some who pass through on the other side are singing and dancing. They're singing the song of Moses. And really, Revelation, when you read it closely, it's, it's seen very much in, in, through that paradigm of, of Exodus. I mean, the judgment that God is going to bring down is in the form of plagues, and there's weeping, and there's wailing, and there's also some who are singing and dancing because they've passed through and made it to the Sea of Crystal, where they, in Revelation 15, are singing the Song of Moses. And what is it that one group of people get to sing and and, and another group of people are left weeping and wailing? It's one simple thing because God's judgment comes on the whole. Don't think God's judgment is just coming on the bad guys and the good guys are spared. Don't think God's judgment is just coming on those who have wrong theology, but those who have right theology are spared. It's coming on the whole. And the only reason why some are singing and dancing is because they've been covered in the blood of a lamb. 
And the Passover lamb of Exodus only points us to the one true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Which is why in the book of Revelation, every time almost that King Jesus is described, he's always described as the lamb, the lamb who is slain. I love this. In Revelation 5, what are God's people going to be singing? We're going to be singing this song throughout eternity. And don't think it's going to get boring. Because when we are in the presence of the Lamb, we can do nothing but sing this song. You are worthy because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God people from every tribe, language, and nation. And then I looked and I heard the voice of angels and people numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000, encircling the throne. In a loud voice, they said, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive glory, wealth, wisdom, and strength, honor, glory, and praise. If you think it's as simple as just having right doctrine in your head or living a good moral life, you're wrong. It's about surrendering the totality of our life to the Lamb. That the Lamb is our all in all. He's our righteousness, it's not my righteousness. He's our goodness, it's not my goodness. And that his blood will cover and protect us on the great day of the Lord. Which is why I think there's one thing more than any other thing that keeps us from Christ. Even if our doctrine is right and we've put right doctrine in our brain or we live a good righteous life, this one thing, pride, pride, because pride will keep us from never trusting what God offers to us in Jesus. And that's in our text today. Look at verse 5, chapter 18, verse 5. Talking about Babylon, Babylon's sins are heaped. Now listen to this clause. As high as the heavens. <laughs> that clause is first used in the Bible, word for word, in Genesis 11. That tower, the Tower of Babel, that reached as high as the heavens. That tower that was built because of pride. Let's build a tower to make a name for ourselves. And that tower itself is human pride. That's what they built. Pride is about making a name for ourselves. See, in Hebrew, Babel and Babylon are the same word. So when we're in Revelation 18 talking about 
uh, Babel or Babylon, and it says her sin is heaped as high as the heavens. Uh, that is the sin of pride. It's the sin of let's build a tower to make a name for ourselves. And see, this is why Babel entices us. It, it promises to give us all a name. You sell your soul to, to Babel, and, and she will give you a name. And I think this is what lies at the heart of Babel. Uh, the, the, the sin underneath all sin, the sin underneath power, the sin underneath lust, the sin underneath pornea, the sin underneath greed, it's pride. C.S. Lewis says this so well. He says sexual sin, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. He said it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride, he says, leads to every other vice. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. That's pride. That's Babylon. In fact, think about Babel's greatest person. Does anyone come to your mind? This guy was king of his world. He had an empire that ruled the world. He actually conquered Israel as one of the empires. He destroyed God's house, um, God's city. He built what, was, what uh, scholars say might be the greatest city ever built. It, it included the Hanging Gardens, uh, which was a wonder of that world. Um, he made this whole city look more like a park than an actual city. It was spectacular and, and, and beautiful. I mean, this guy stands as the epitome of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, in Daniel 4, verse 30, this is what he says. He says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of moi, my majesty? That's pride. By my might and for my glory. See, it's pride that actually causes a person to think, I did that. I accomplished that. I earned that. I won the game for us. I got the grade. You don't have to be a great person like Nebuchadnezzar to be infected with pride. I mean, you could be a homeless person living underneath the highway and still insist that life is all about me and life is for me. And here's what proud people have. And when I say they, I'm including me. How do you think I know this so well? Um, they have this sense of oldness. That when good things come into their life, they just automatically think, yep, I deserve that. Yep, I earned that. Yep, I accomplished that. And, and, and they, they just automatically think that God owes them, that their family owes them, that their coach owes them, their teachers, their school owes them, their government owes them, life owes them. And here's the deal. Let me ask you this. What are you owed right now? 
What do you want? Do you right now think that you deserve anything you have? See, and this is how true humility destroys pride. Because the humble actually believe everything I have, everything that I, 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 I am, has, has nothing to do with me, but is nothing more than a gift from a gracious, merciful God. Do you think that way? Because I've noticed this with humble people, and, and, and it's not show. It, 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 it really is. Like, like when good things happen or come into the life of a humble person, they receive those things with almost flattery. Because they just instinctively think, I don't deserve this. I could never begin to merit what I, what I have or what I am. That everything is, is, is a gift from God, and they're grateful. Which is why every day is almost like Christmas for them. Because every day they see the gifts that they have, and they're thankful. On the flip side, the Nebuchadnezzars of the world are deeply troubled people in fact, they teach us you can build the biggest towers, you can live in the most posh palaces, you, you can be ruler of the world and have all this wealth and pour all the kingdoms of the world into your soul, but even that is still not enough because the human soul has been made to crave something even bigger than the world. And see, this is why the Bible teaches us this simple truth. We're not going to find our souls longing in Babylon. We're not going to find our souls longing in money, in sex, in power, or anything that Babylon offers. Which is why, going back to those seven letters, even though at times they were very harsh, I, I hope you can see how loving they were to God's people because basically what God is doing is he's just saying, beware, beware of Babylon. Beware of coming under Babylon's spell. Beware of becoming sucked into Babylon and becoming like Babylon. And the beautiful thing is, is that God has never gives up on his church, even with the last letter where he's on the outside because they pushed him out. He's still knocking. Let me in. I haven't given up on you. I'll tell you what, Nebuchadnezzar, if you know anything about him, he foreshadows our text today because if you know more about that story, he has this dream about a world tree and, and that tree itself reaches to the heavens, just like the tower reaches to the heavens, just like the sin of Babylon reaches to the heavens. This tree, uh, the whole world can see it. But like the tower, it's cut down. And then Nebuchadnezzar, who's so tormented by this thing, he sends for Daniel and tells Daniel the dream. And when Daniel hears the dream, Daniel turns white because he says to him, he says, Oh, king, you are that tree, and that tree is your pride. God is about to cut you down because God doesn't do pride. 
And God is about to show you, Nebuchadnezzar, how poor, pitiful, blind, and naked you really are. And sure enough, that's what happens. Read, read the story this week. In a single hour, the world's greatest man is cut down. God takes it all away. He takes away his position. He takes away his palace. He takes away his empire. He takes away even this guy's own sanity uh, to the point where he's left to wander around in fields like an ox where his hair grows out, his toenails grow out, and to do that for seven whole years. Made to look like a fool. Because the Bible loves to show us the foolishness, the foolishness of pride. Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor they gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and in their foolish hearts they were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Look around. We are becoming fools. Fools. And the reason why so many people are willing to become proud fools, even if it means they become like an ox in the field, is because they don't want to admit that they aren't in control and they don't want to admit how desperate they need God. And so to keep life under their control, they become fools. Which is why God hates pride. He hates it. He's going to cut that tree down. He's going to destroy that tower. And he's going to take this, this city, Babylon, and he's going to cast it into the sea. He doesn't do pride. Alas, alas, O oh great city, Babylon, city of power, in a single hour your doom has come. Alas, alas, O oh great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In a single hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Alas, alas, O oh great city, here all you, your ships on the sea became rich through your wealth. In a single hour she has been brought to ruin. Are you a proud person who insists on being in control and in control of your life? Because in a single hour, in a single hour, God can snap his fingers and he can take it all away. He can humble a person like that. He can humble a marriage. He can humble a family. He can humble a church. He can humble an institution. He can humble a nation. One snap of the finger. You know what Babylon says? She boasts. I sit as a queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. 
That's almost a direct paraphrase of Revelation 3, verse 17 from the church in Laodicea. You boast, O church, and you say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. And Jesus says back to them, you do not realize you are poor, pitiful, blind, and naked. This church was too proud to admit need. Folks, we desperately need each other. I need you. You need each other. And we desperately need God. We need him. And yet Christians can be some of the most proud, arrogant people on the face of the earth. Whether it's our wealth that makes us proud, whether it's our comfortable, easy lifestyle that makes us proud, or, or even things like right theology can make us proud, hyper-spirituality can make us proud, living a good, righteous life can make us proud. But here's the deal with God. With God, it's not the bad people are out and the good people are in. With God, it's the proud are out and the humble are in. The people who are going to sing when, when judgment day comes are going to be the humble. And the proud are going to weep and they're going to wail. Are you a humble person today? Are you a proud person? I'm going to end with some good news, some really good news. This is beautiful. Nebuchadnezzar, this, this probably the, one of the most proudest people to ever walk the face of the earth. God takes it all away from him. God undresses him. God undresses him of his empire, of his throne, of his palace. He undresses him of his sanity. He undresses him of everything until he's left to just be like an ox in the field for seven years. And in all of this, why is God doing this? God's doing this to this man because God actually loves him. And God wants to bring sanity to him and show him what he cannot see. How much he needs God. At the end of these seven years, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes to heaven. And my sanity was restored. He said, then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever his dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and worship and glorify the king of heaven. Because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble How far does God need to go to break you, to break us of our pride? Earlier I said the human soul wants something bigger than the world. And that something bigger than the world is Jesus.
And I promise you that when you recognize your need for him, your longing for him, and you take him in, he will satisfy your soul. And he gave us a meal for us to see his humility. This king makes the world right, not by being a lion, but by being a lamb. By giving up his life. And this morning, I want us to only eat if we are ready to repent of our pride and we come in humility to this humble king who lived a humble life, who humbly gave it all up, and that we would ask God, God, you are my everything. Jesus, you're my righteousness. You're my all in all. I trust you. Let's pray and prepare our hearts right now for communion. God, make our hearts hungry, hungry right now for your manna. And what some of us are about to eat is real food. It's your body that was broken, your blood that was shed. And this is why you can say, behold, I'm making all things new. And God, take our pride and replace it with your humility. Amen. Jesus wins. He wins. And listen, he didn't win as a lion. He is the lion of Judah. He won as a lamb. There's a lot of lion junk going on these days in our culture. Both sides. Everyone's getting lion-like. Church of Jesus Christ, it's time for us to be lamb-like. Okay? He won by losing. He won by losing. Let's win by losing. Have a great week. See ya.